Good evening, everyone, and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and welcome to Restorative Justice and Social Healing in the United States and Beyond. This is a free telecouncil series that has been happening since last year on a fairly weekly basis. And it offers and aims to offer a platform for education, dialogue, resources, and connectivity. And it's a delight to have you all here with us tonight. Um, before I give a brief introduction to our very special guest, just a few words about the format for those of you that haven't been here before. Um, I'd like to just make an open invitation since this is a telecouncil and a circle as best we can virtually, it's an inclusive process throughout the hour. And we'd like to invite you to please press 1 on your telephone keypad if you'd like to make a question or ask a question, make a comment, um, reflection to either our guest or just in general to the circle. Again, that's just by pressing 1 on your telephone keypad. You can do that. That alerts me to uh, open up the line when I can. I'd also like to invite you to check out the archives from this telecouncil series at mollyrowanpresents.com. That's mollyrowanpresents.com. The archives and the upcoming guest schedule as well as registration is on the upcoming events tab. Some of our upcoming guest speakers include Michael Megler of the Meta Center for Nonviolence, uh, Libby Hoffman of Fambel Polk, and um, Hart Phoenix, Dot Maver, and Jeffrey Feinberg of the River, Cent River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding. It's been a delight to host this series, and it will continue into the unknown and indefinitive future. So I'm, I'm happy to have everyone here tonight. And finally, without further ado, just want to uh, acknowledge our very, guest, uh, very special guest tonight, Kay Pranis. Um, to me, Kay, is, uh, she's devoted her life to pulling together um, the many aspects of what makes restorative justice. Uh, community, existing systems, um, faith communities, uh, youth, and many other aspects of, of restorative justice that, that enact that, that process. Kay has served um, in the past as the restorative justice planner for the Minnesota Department of Corrections. And then since 1998, she has conducted circle trainings in a diverse range of communities from schools to prisons to workplaces to churches, and from rural towns in Minnesota to Chicago's south side to Montgomery, Alabama. I'm looking at one of her little books, literally. It's called The Little Book of Circle Processes, A New, Old Approach to Peacemaking. And so I just want to thank you again, Kay, so very much for taking the time to be with us tonight. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome. I'm honored to be here with you. It's delightful for me to, to talk about this. <laughs> and so, Kay, I just I thought maybe we would open up tonight's circle with uh, perhaps you sharing what, what brought you into restorative justice work and into also really um, illuminating the fact that this is both a new and old, both and approach to peacemaking, to, to justice. So could, if you have any special stories or inspirations that brought you into um, kind of that moment where you, you may even have had one of those moments that, that, that said, this is what I must do, um, can you share a little bit about your background? Um, yes, my journey to the work that I do was an accidental one. Um, it wasn't anything that I consciously chose. I um, have a, a university education, but it's completely unrelated. And, and I often introduce myself saying I have no formal training in any related field. Uh, I stayed home for 16 years, raising my kids, got very active in the community, served on a school board, served on the board of a battered women's organization, 
And then uh, as they moved into high school, decided I better build some other center in my life and started looking for a regular job. But I didn't have credentials for anything in particular. Spent a year applying to lots of different places and didn't even get interviews. And then got an opportunity to go to work for a nonprofit in Minneapolis that worked in the criminal justice field. I knew nothing about criminal justice, but took the job to demonstrate that I was capable of holding a job. Um, One of the seminal moments then in that job was um, an article by Kay Harris that crossed my desk. So the job that I had was doing policy stuff, um, advocate, figuring out what would be good policy and then advocating for that policy at the state level. So a lot of material came across my desk that related to policy. And it was an article by Kay Harris in the late 80s, um, 88 or 89, entitled The Feminist Vision of Justice. And Kay took what she saw as three um, core tenets of uh, a feminist point of view and looked at what justice would look like if if it followed those three ideas. And those three tenets were that um, everyone deserves to be treated with dignity. All humans have dignity, no matter what they've done. The second was that uh, relationships are more important than power. And the third is that the personal is the political, the idea that you don't have a different behavior in private than you do in public. And she had then sort of played out what justice would look like if it followed those principles. And that spoke deeply to me. Uh, I always described it as like going home. Like it, it articulated what I believed about the universe but I could not have put into words myself. Not long after that, but I also knew that you couldn't promote anything in the United States with the feminist label attached to it. Politically, you you could never go any place with trying to promote um, a policy that that comes out of feminism. But I tucked it away in the back of my mind. And within the next six months, I think, I saw the early pamphlets from the Mennonite Central Committee about restorative justice. And to me, they were the same thing. But I knew that Chuck Colson, uh, who came from the political right, was supporting this through Justice Fellowship. And I figured any platform that could hold Chuck Colson and me was a winning deal. (laughs) Um, And so I began to... Honey, you're going to have to leave, honey. Uh, sorry, my grandson just came into my room here. Uh, so that was, those two things were really critical, running into Kay Harris's article, because it shaped the way I looked at restorative justice. Um, for me, it was about community and not just about individual reconciliation, because uh, Kay Harris's work had a lot of emphasis on community. And and so I never saw restorative justice as individual reconciliation, which was the frame for many people originally. But mm-hmm. I didn't even I didn't even realize that at the time. My interpretation when um, when I found Howard Zare's article was always through that lens that had already been shaped by uh, Kay Harris. And so yeah, that it just it just became something that made so much sense to me that I just, that was what I had to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Howard Zare, um, probably many in the circle tonight know of him, but maybe some do not. Would you just say a few words about his prominent place in, in the recent history of restorative justice as well, if you wouldn't mind? So I generally characterize Howard as the grandfather of the modern restorative justice movement in the United States. I mean, he was the the pioneer who conceptualized what was happening in practice with victim-offender 
face-to-face meetings. Um, it began with practice, which is, I think, one of the interesting things about the movement, that it began with this practice of face-to-face meetings between victims and offenders. And then at some point, Howard stepped back from the immediacy of that practice to look at what was happening here on a conceptual level. And then he articulated those principles of restorative justice. And he still, for me, is the the sort of primary thought developer who uh, articulates in the, in the most simple and elegant way what restorative justice is about. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and it appears to me that he has so many powerful academic papers and a lot of research that he, he has provided, which is critical to um, the current practice, I guess we, we might call it, between the, the theories and um, the understanding that we need to move towards uh, a dignified system and a systemic change in that direction and then actualizing it. Is that... Is, yes, I comment on that? that. I think that Howard, um, to a degree that's unusual for somebody who's now in the academic world, but he wasn't originally, which was probably an important part of that history, is that that um, that he was a he could theorize about this, but he never lost touch with the reality of what it is on the ground. And he had been a practitioner first. He was a practitioner first, and then developed the the theory and the conceptual framework. And one of the wonderful things about Howard is that, and, and he's just a model for all of us, is that he has continued to grow. So over the period that I've known him, and he's been in this way longer than I have, but over the period that I've known him, there's some things around the conceptual framework that he's changed, right, based on the the experiences that continued to happen and the conversations that people had that um, resulted in him saying, well, the way I talked about that earlier, I would talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit differently now. Not the mm-hmm. core concepts, but particularly the contrast with uh, the current system. Um, he really began to to talk about the importance of recognizing that there's something about retribution that we have to pay attention to. And I think of it as retribution um, represents for many people validation of the wrongness and that, 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 that in that impulse there is something important. Uh, it doesn't have to be achieved through causing harm again, but validation of the wrongness of what happened is something that we need to pay attention to. So he evolved in his thinking uh, over time. And for me, that's, that's such a wonderful role model because it would have been easy for him to get stuck in the way he had originally articulated it because, mm-hmm. because he was the guy. Right? He was the, mm-hmm. the, the, mm-hmm. Sort of the founder of this way of talking about it. Now, I, I noticed, too, that um, KU, uh, there's an excellent uh, resource in Living Justice Press for those that are interested in, in materials on restorative justice um, from cultural paradigm and perspective, since this is both an emerging process in our Western culture, but, of course, a very old process as well. And maybe later in tonight's um, council, we can go into that a bit more. But Kay, is um, Howard also, uh, can people find articles and things from him there, or is there another place that, that people can look for both of your, your uh, uh, published materials? Uh, restorativejustice.org, in terms of um, not books, but, but articles and things, is probably one of the best sources. Uh, Living Justice Press hasn't published Howard, because uh, Living Justice Press has focused on circles, and uh-huh. Howard uses okay. circles, but hasn't written particularly about circles. Um, and I just want to say a bit about Living Justice Press. It's a nonprofit um, publisher here in St. Paul that's done out of the home of a friend of mine. She and her mother, who's in her 80s, 
uh, do this without pay, uh, produce these books and ship them out. And it's an amazing, absolutely amazing labor of love. Mm. And the work is um, at the books are about circles particularly and then about restorative justice between peoples. The idea that there's been huge historical harms and some continuing harms between groups of people, not just between individuals. And that it's very important for us to begin to think, how do we apply this frame to what happened uh, to Native people on this continent when mm-hmm. Europeans came? And so the, the contribution that Living Justice Press is making in that arena is uh, just enormous, and I, I just mm-hmm. really want to honor that. Mm. Me too. And, uh, yeah, I would encourage those of you that may not be aware of Living Justice Press to certainly visit their website. And that's, again, livingjusticepress.com. And then, of course, uh, or, oh, it's, it's .org, excuse me. LivingJusticePress.org. So um, I'd just like to welcome those who may have have arrived after we uh, opened this evening, and just remind everyone that there's an open invitation tonight to please press one on your keypad at any time if you have a question or a comment for Kay, myself, or uh, general reflection. Um, so Kay, I'd just like to to circle back around for a moment um, and kind of start. Um, with maybe some something fairly simple, and that's uh, in talking about restorative justice. Um, first of all, what what is restorative justice to you? And then, second of all, how does the current restorative justice movement validate? Um, how does it provide, as you were talking about a moment ago? How does it provide validation of the wrong that happened so that it um, provides uh, assurance perhaps to especially the victims of a crime? Um, Could you speak a little bit about your own personal definition and view of restorative justice and then also how it provides validation of the wrong that happened? Yes. Um, I think of restorative justice as uh, a response, a framework that guides responses to harm um, that focus on healing. And so for me, it's, uh, it's an approach to whatever you do after harm has happened that's guided by moving toward healing for everyone who was impacted by the situation. And that healing, uh, Dan Van Ness talks about um, if crime is a wound, then justice is healing. And that restorative justice attends to the, the wounds caused by and revealed by a crime. Okay, So caused by is what we're usually, the harm caused by the crime, so where we we typically focus, but restorative justice also says that we need to attend to the wounds revealed by crime, which takes us to what are the underlying issues? Are there issues of injustice that contributed to the choice that this person made? Uh, so we don't deal just with the surface, that we have to deal with, with what's underneath it as well. So for me, it's a healing approach. And, and it's an approach that says that we have to look not just at what happened most recently, but what was underneath that. And that everyone, every one of us bears responsibility for what's happening in our communities. Um, and that we have to pay attention to our responsibility in looking at what role we have in trying to repair harm now and what role we might have in trying to address the underlying causes or issues that are revealed by crime. When you talk about the, the question of validation, I think this is a very important conversation that we have to have more because much of the demand for punishment, I believe, in our culture 
is driven by a desire to express how wrong people think the behavior was. And the only measure we have of how wrong the behavior was is how much pain we are willing to inflict on the person who caused the harm. Um, but we can think about this very differently. We can validate in ways that actually have nothing to do with the person who caused the harm. And my favorite example of that is a story that came out of Billings, Montana, quite some time ago now, but uh, was a situation where a Jewish family who had a Star of David hung in their window experienced uh, rocks thrown through the window and swastikas painted on the house. And their next-door neighbors hung a Star of David in their window to show their support for this family. And then at some point, and this grew a little, and at some point the um, newspaper in Billings printed a Star of David on a half a page of the, the paper, and people all over the city cut that out and hung it in their windows. That was validation for the victims. In that case, they actually never found the person who was causing the harm, but the behavior stopped and the community had rallied around the, that family in such a way to be very, very clear that that behavior was wrong and the community did not approve of it. That's the kind of, that for me, that's sort of the image that we're talking about with validation that what happened to the person who was harmed, validation that that was not right and that they didn't deserve that, but that it does not have to be hooked to how much pain we inflict on the person who caused the harm. It's actually quite a separate question. Mm. Now, let's just say there's, uh, you know, there's people involved in, especially perhaps victims involved um, in approaching the possibility of um, a restorative justice process, and yet they're very skeptical and um, and not really sure. That, that this is something that even has teeth. Um, how, how do we in this moment here um, where systemically we haven't fully implemented restorative justice all the way home, right? I mean, uh, I'd love to hear from you examples, if, if you have some, of, of how um, you may have seen a process kind of from A to Z really work successfully um, and how how we can assure our victims that actually this is to their benefit. How do we tell them that? How how, how can we stay in inquiry with them and, and be be um, very sensitive to where they're at in their own process after whatever was visited upon them as far as the crime is concerned? So staying in inquiry with them is is the most important part, I think. Um, mm-hmm. That in fact. We don't enter into the process assuming that we know what would be the best way for the victim in going forward. That uh, it's important to have, a, have options, uh, numerous mm-hmm. options. And that what you're thinking about is um, sort of the, these guiding questions, that, for me at least, the, these guiding questions around restorative justice is in any case you're thinking about how do we increase the uh, validation for the victim, right? And that may be more about the community than it is about the person who caused the harm. So you do that regardless of whether you do a face-to-face meeting. So how do we increase the support and validation for the victim? How do we increase the degree to which there is repair of the harm that was caused? Um, How do we increase the understanding by the person who committed the crime of how people were impacted by that behavior. And then how do we involve the person who caused the harm in repair in some way? It may be that the person who was victimized doesn't particularly want to do a face-to-face process, but there's still lots of things that you can do that would... um, increase the, the understanding of the person who committed the crime of the harm that they caused that would involve that person in repair 
even if there wasn't a face-to-face meeting. For many people, the most powerful way of expressing how they feel is a face-to-face process with the person who hurt them, but not for everyone. And so there's no presumption in restorative justice about what that process should look like, except that it needs to be respectful of everyone. It needs to hear all voices in the process. It needs to um, make sure that it does no further harm to anyone. I mean, I think that one of the big principles guiding restorative justice is do no further harm. Um, so if you if you enter in your interaction with victims, asking them what they want and what they need and how you can be helpful to them, then you follow the path that that unfolds uh, and and you you offer what are the various things that that can happen, for instance, if you had a case if you had a circle sentencing circle kind of process in your community the the case could go to the circle, and the victim has several choices: they can participate in the circle if they wish. They can send someone to represent them in the circle process but not go themselves. They can submit written information to the process. They can still access, if they wanted, uh, the right to go to court and actually read an impact statement in a court. So you can um, have the community dealing with the person who committed the crime and working in a way that's around um, restoration and healing and still allow the victim a, a number of options about you know, where they want to participate. And, and the whole thing is not driven by the idea of trying to convince the victim to participate. It's driven by what does that particular victim need, what would that particular victim want as the best way to um, move forward in their own lives relative to this particular event. Mm-hmm. What, what do you? What's your thought on um, if if uh, the um, perception arises? Oh well, you're not behind me. You're you're just behind. Um, you're trying to coddle uh, the perpetrator and. Um, you know, kind of going into this, this old, kind of the old, maybe perhaps might, it might be considered the old paradigm of, of us and them, and that uh, really seems indicative of, of, of the di- what might be a dying system, which appears to me to be a dying system of, of, of the punitive um, justice that, uh, that is very entrenched in, in the system, and I. I just so admire that you, you know, you spent so much time within the, you know, the Minnesota Department of Corrections, and you really, you have uh, have a tenure there of being able to speak from within the system as well. So how how do you see um, how how do we address and speak to um, that kind of perception and consciousness as well? You can't be all, you can't be be wanting good for the whole. That's just not acceptable. Um, you, you clearly are, you know, just behind um, getting this person off from from their their crime. How, well, the, how do we handle wonder, that? The wonderful thing about circles, in particular, is that anybody who feels like that, you can say you can come to this process, and uh, the decision has, is by consensus. So you have to be okay mm-hmm. with. It. You can participate. Your everything you feel will be the, everything you want to say will be listened to. Your point of view be, will be respected, and you will have say in the outcome. Um, that's the nature of circles when you use them for determining sentences. Uh, and for me, it's just the most powerful kind of response. Is it? If you think that a certain kind of thing has to happen, for instance, this person has to go to prison for many years, you come. You participate, you share mm-hmm. your perspective. What we mm-hmm. find is that 
um, and this is not just what we find in restorative justice. There's actually years of research on public opinion that is quite clear that if you ask a general question, that people will say the sentence should have been harsher. If you give the specifics of a case, people's opinion changes considerably, and much more so when people sit in the same space with the other person and connect with them as a human being and then begin to have to think about the reality of what they thought should happen, what that would be like for the other person, and would it really help um, what really did happen here and what's the most constructive thing to do now. So um, the, the thing is that you're constantly inviting the critic in. You invite the critic in, you respect their point of view, uh, you look for the way in which there's something that's important to them that you actually agree with, right? Mm-hmm. That you agree mm-hmm. that, that this is not okay, uh, and that mm-hmm. as a community, we need to say clearly to our own members that this isn't okay. Um, and then maybe we're going to keep our eye on them, but... How much better if we as neighbors keep our eye on them than counting on the system to keep their Mm -hmm. eye uh, on someone? They say, you know, it gives people an active role, even if they're coming from that that sort of perspective. And once people have ownership of making it work, uh, it's amazing. I mean, it's just amazing what happens in terms of people trying to make it work. (laughs) Right now, no one is committed to the success of the person who has made a mistake, right? Because none of us own any part of the decision about what will happen except the judge. You know, maybe maybe the, mm-hmm. the attorneys involved. But the general public has no ownership, no commitment to success, even though we'd all be better off if people are successful and don't commit any new crimes. But, for instance, when somebody comes out of prison, the community as a whole is kind of standing back, almost hoping that they will fail, right, because it fulfills mm-hmm. our expectations of them. But mm-hmm. if you flip people onto the side of having some responsibility, saying, okay, you get to say something about the conditions that this person will have to meet when they come out um, under supervision, and then, then you become committed to success. You want the conditions you came up with to work. <laughs> um, so it you you invite the critic in, and then they have responsibility. Mm. And how, this is great. How, how do you see um, the existing system linking up with uh, communities that are committed to? Um, I guess uh, many uh, many communities are jumping in. Um, Sylvia Clute was my guest a few weeks ago, and she was sharing that you know in many cases uh, communities. Just a natural process of life, and you know, a crime happens, and um, it presents you the opportunity to make a commitment. And so, could you speak a little bit about like how this all works? How how do we how do people get involved? How do they link up with the existing system? And how does this really look in its process? Um, in you know, really working as far as um, connecting the the. I'm sure there's existing structures already set up in many places, um, including in the community where I live, um, not far from here, there's a restorative justice program that's basically focused on mediation. And so uh, you know, we're, we're talking a, a bit about also community here um, and how, the, how people can actually get involved on the ground. Could, could you speak a little bit about what you've seen and, and how, it might, how it works? Um, yes, and most of my experience around that is in Minnesota, but I also have worked closely with people in, in Chicago um, to some degree in Oakland. But um, And I want to say before I talk about this that it's important for us all to be very clear that right now restorative justice is very, very on the margins. I don't know of any place where there's really a systemic implementation. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, it's growing a lot, and it's having a lot of influence in a way. Um, but operationally, it's still 
it's still rare, okay? So we just need to understand that as we talk about this. So what I saw happen in Minnesota was um, a lot of different ways that things could get started. And, and we had a very um, open approach to it here where we had the emphasis on the values and the philosophy, and each community would come together with stakeholders and whoever was interested and say design what they wanted it to look like in their community. So uh, unlike Colorado tended to implement uh, the conferencing model a lot, um, in different states you see different things that sometimes predominate across the state, but in Minnesota it was, it's been very locally driven. Um, so I worked in a community where it was a victim who got energized and organized a local community justice um, council, and, and they started talking with the, the major stakeholders in the system and convincing them to come and be part of their meetings and then began to talk to them about a process and then getting cases, but it was initiated by a victim. In another, in a neighborhood in um, St. Paul, it was a judge. A judge learned about this process. He was on the adult bench, so it was a project that started around adults uh, from the African-American neighborhood, a particular African-American neighborhood, um, largely driven by a desire by that community to not see so many of their uh, husbands, brothers, and sons uh, go off to prison. Uh, in other communities, it was something initiated by a church. Um, in some places, it started in law enforcement. In some places, it started in a school. So for me, it, it doesn't really matter where it starts. It has to start with someone who has a lot of energy and passion for uh, this idea. And then <coughs> it's a community organizing process. And sometimes it starts in, with somebody inside the system and sometimes it's somebody outside the system. But in either case, it's really a community organizing process. You get out and you do public speaking wherever you can find people who are willing to listen to you. And every time you speak, you look for the people who light up and say, would you like to come and join us? A, a group of us are meeting every two weeks or once a month and looking at how can we take these ideas and create something meaningful in our community. And if you want that to be within the criminal justice system at some point, you need to create that bridge to the, the structure of the system if those folks are not already at your table. So you, you go and talk to them, you ask them if they will come to your meeting and present to you about the way they do things and what's important to them. And, and, uh, and understand, let them explain how they see the system to you. Well, the thing you do not do is go in and tell people they're doing it all wrong. Um, right. Because right. it just doesn't work very well. Uh, right. And, and so sometimes you get, uh, what's common is to get a diversion project. It's, uh, you know, to, those are the, that's a place in the system where people are more open to trying something different. And in some places what they're doing is already rather similarly motivated. So uh, diversion, juvenile diversion is often um, a good place to sort of get your foot in the door in, mm -hmm. in, in the system. But you want to be very mm -hmm. careful about that because um, you don't ever want people to be saying that this is just for low-level offenses. Because if your purpose is healing, if your purpose is support for people who've been hurt, it's actually more important in more serious cases than it is in the minor cases. Um, but generally, you get opportunity more on the lower level cases at the beginning. And it's actually victims that have pushed um, access at the more serious end of the, the spectrum. The, the victim mm -hmm. offender mediation programs around serious violent crimes were the result of victims saying, I need something. Years have gone by since my child was murdered and I'm still struggling. I need, I need to talk to that person. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was a bit of a, a sidetrack. But the, the community piece for me is um, part of a wider movement, in fact, all the restorative justice stuff is mean, part of a wider paradigm shift 
that says that you cannot send your problems as a community to a set of professionals and expect that to work. The community mm-hmm. must solve mm-hmm. its own problems, sometimes with the help of, of uh, professionals, but it's got to be fundamentally driven by the community and owned by the community. Um, otherwise, mm-hmm. it doesn't really get us to, to where we want to be. And so it's, um, it's going it's to take a long time because we moved over a period of probably 40 years anyway through a process of continually handing off functions that used to be done by community to professional systems. Mm-hmm. And, and some of our community skills atrophied in that process. And so mm-hmm. we need to now begin to rekindle those. And mm-hmm. we, for me, uh, for me, this has always been a very important understanding that that happened for very good reasons. <laughs> we threw out some of the informal social controls that operated in communities in the 50s. Many of them were racist, sexist, and homophobic. We're not talking about re-implementing the kind of informal social control that, that was exercised then, but we absolutely must have more community-grounded social, um, maybe control isn't the right word, but accountability to one another. Mm-hmm at the community level, and that the restorative principles are really a guide for how to rebuild that sort of uh, informal social accountability to one another in Uh ways that don't, that aren't based out of um, some system of domination, which it was in the past. So in a moment, I'd like us to turn then to the circle of coming full circle around back to what our indigenous uh, ancestors have done. But there is a question out there that I'd like to field at this point. Um, You're live, Mike, and welcome. Thank you. My question is, I just received some the other day that points out that apparently Bank of America is partly bankrupting, uh, bank rolling some of the uh, industrial judicial prisons. And I'm wondering from your point of view, if you see, how do you see what's going on? Are we making any progress or is the uh, business part of uh, justice Making uh, over opposed to what we're trying to do here. There are very powerful forces, and one of that one of those would be uh, private industry, which benefits in some way, whether it's private prisons or whether it's even just the industries that uh, service prisons. Uh, th- those are those are powerful forces. The other one is the. Um, the the union, for instance, the corrections officers union in California was responsible to a large degree in getting the three strikes and you're out law passed because it enlarged their empire. So those are very powerful forces out there, um, not to be taken lightly. Uh, however, I not much of my energy is focused in that direction because I think that. Um, oh, there's a wonderful quote from, from Buckminster Fuller about you can't um, oh, you can't change a, a system by fighting with it. Uh, you mm-hmm. have to you have to bring forth something new that makes it obsolete. And so I think that's what we're doing, but it's a it's a long slow process. There are several mm-hmm. positive signs on the national level, though most of the discourse is in the opposite direction of what we're talking about. But we've had a number of states roll back drug laws uh, in order to reduce their prison populations. And the current financial crunch is, is really pushing people to question who needs to be locked up. Uh, so there's a very, very slight movement of the pendulum back away from the extreme, um, 
but we're still so, so far off balance that, um, that we're still very much at risk. Uh, the, the big thing for me is um, I think it's quite amazing how far we've come in restorative justice, even though it's so on the margins, given that there has been no central organizing force and no significant amount of money invested in this work, and yet it is moving in a very powerful, steady way. And I liken it to groundwater, right? You can't see it, but you cannot stop it. I like and that. It, it will mm-hmm. surface at some point. Um, and as I move around the country, it's been very interesting to me. About a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, I suddenly went, wow. Uh, it feels like a second generation or a second wave. Maybe wave is better. It isn't long enough to be a generation. It feels like a second wave, even here in my home state, um, of programs. Because we had a lot of programs that started in the late 90s, and we lost a bunch of those uh, in the early 2000s. And there was a kind of retrenchment. It didn't go away, but there was definitely a contraction. Um, I wasn't worried about it going away. I never thought it would, but but we had a contraction. And then I suddenly realized um, about a year ago that things had expanded again, but it felt to me like they had deeper roots. So the, the second it survived that period where there was some risk of it kind of just fading away, and there's a slow resurgence. Uh, with what I think is is deeper roots, which and I think that's probably that just by surviving to some degree, it's gotten a little more legitimacy, um, and that the, I believe the change we're talking about is of a magnitude beyond my own imagination. That that this shift we're talking about is. It permeates every part of our lives. It isn't just about how we do justice in the criminal justice system. It's mm-hmm. about how we treat our children. It's about how mm-hmm. we treat our neighbors. It's about mm-hmm. how we treat employees when they make a mistake at work. We are so oriented to judgment and punishment and a fear that people will run amok if you don't hold some threat over them. It's in the air we breathe from the time we're born. So it doesn't flip overnight. Um, I mean, for myself, in my own life, and I live, I've been living with this, these ideas in such an intimate way for, um, for what, 15 years. And, and still, I mean, I find myself doing the same things, right? Uh, rushing to judgment, thinking, mm, you know, got to get even mm-hmm. in some way about something that happened. Um, so, yeah, it's a long journey we're on for this work. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much for that question, Mike. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and field another one here. Ken, welcome. Let me get your mic live. There we go. Welcome, Ken. Yeah, I the program here. And so often and sitting in a circle changing. Um, Molly, Ken, 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 we're having, yeah, um, I don't believe, Ken, that, yeah, we're not hearing you, Ken. If you're in a place on a cell phone, um, is there a possibility that you can can find a spot? uh, Because you're coming in and out. Okay, I think I'll probably come in better here. Um, Okay, there you go. That's better. Okay, very, very quickly. it seems to me that people sitting in a circle will arrive at the closure that people say they want to get by putting someone in prison and punishing them, and finally they can let go of the pain because this person is being punished. 
rather than seeing this person as a human being, as would happen in a circle, and um, evoking their inner compassion to override the need for quote unquote closure. Could you comment on that? Um, I think it's generally true that um, that when people are face to face, this is this is actually the the good thing about human beings that we sometimes forget. When we are face to face in a completely respectful environment, right? And this is this is really critical because we can see lots of face to face stuff that's ugly, but in a completely respectful environment where um, the person who might be angry is respected and heard, and the person they're angry at would also be uh, respected and heard. In that kind of environment, people generally can begin to see themselves in each other and realize that that the what they thought of as the other is something completely different than themselves, having nothing in common that the other actually does have shared humanity with them. And um, I, I just heard this idea recently, and, and I had heard it from a, a friend who was a, a lawyer and dealt with a very difficult case, that each of us is more than the worst thing we ever did. And when you sit in a circle and and talk first about your values and then talk about difficult life experiences that might be not the not what happened that brought you together but just some sharing of life stories around challenges and then you talk about what happened and what the pain has been uh, it's very unusual for someone to stay in a place of complete separation from the one they thought of as the other because we are genetically wired for connection. Human beings are profoundly, deeply, genetically wired for connection. And when the space is nurturing to the possibility of seeing ourselves in each other, it's very rare that that doesn't happen. once we see connection, then the the sort of black-white kind of thinking that's common around punishment or a desire for punishment, um, that just it gets organically shifted. Uh, yes, it's really, it's an amazing thing to see. And, and I experience it myself. Um, when I first began to do work where I was training folks who worked for the Department of Corrections to use the circle process for staff conflict, this had nothing to do with the inmates. It was for using a restorative process for staff conflict. And the first time I did a training that had a bunch of corrections officers in it, I didn't go there with a lot of empathy. For them, I'd heard too many awful stories about things that happen in prisons, and I sat in circle with them, and I loved them by the time we were finished. So even where I step in with judgments about other people, I see in myself the shift that happens when we sit together, we share stories, we talk about the values that matter to us, and and I see in that other person things that are like myself, and I can no longer hold them in this place of sort of absolute judgment. Mm. Wow. Well, I I hate to say it, but we are getting close to the top of the hour, and I was hoping, um, in, in due respect to everybody's time, and of course, first and foremost, yours, Kay, um, if we could close tonight... Uh, just maybe if you could speak for a minute or two about um, because of the richness and the robustness of coming full circle, um, you know, like you were saying, this yes, these community processes and restorative justice is of course about justice, but it's also 
a process in which we find ourselves coming home to our shared humanity and to uh, uh, to ourselves essentially and to recognizing ourselves in each other and um, of course the indigenous in our in our history um, of course the the native North American peoples um, and many other tribal practices in our world um, from before have have held some form of restorative justice in in their practices and I wondered if we could close tonight with something um, of a you know of a of a glimpse that I could, because I do know that that from what in my in my conversations the brief ones we've had I get I get a real deep sense of your tap on on that very thing that this is a both an old and a new approach to to justice and to as you say in your book the little book of circle processes uh, a new old approach to peacemaking. So is uh, there yes. anything that you'd particular like particularly like to to close with tonight around this this area? Yes, um, thank you for asking that question. Um, I am personally deeply indebted to uh, Indigenous people in North America, both in the the U.S. and Canada, because it was in um, so much of the work I do is rooted in things that they taught me, and and a lot of that teaching wasn't with words. Um, it has come in in many different ways, but the I think what's so central to this old part that that is still carried by many indigenous people around the world, but all of us had at one time, is this understanding of the interconnectedness of the universe. And out of that understanding of the interconnectedness, you know your response to, to harm has to be restorative because harm to one is harm to all. If you respond to harm with new harm, you're hurting yourself and everyone else at the same time. So the interconnectedness drives the need to find a way to respond that's constructive, that doesn't do uh, further harm. And for those places that are still living that understanding of interconnectedness, it's natural. It just organically happens that, that you respond in that way. And it's not that we don't know anything about it. Many of us do this in our families or in certain relationships that we have um, because, because as human beings we do know that, but we've created social structures that do not nurture that. And, and it's, um, it is my teachers from indigenous communities who have had a profound impact uh, on me and have helped me to understand how it is you sit in that space that's one of understanding the interconnectedness. And it does appear that uh, as with circles, um, there's a beginning and uh, a point where the circle comes full circle around back <laughs> um, mm-hmm. to where, where it has already been. And um, it feels to me that we're in a very precious place, even though deeply challenging, uh, as you said earlier, um, to focus our energy on solutions and to continue to stay committed to what is true. And that, uh, as I think it was Arundhati Roy who said uh, something to the effect of, uh, she could hear the new world breathing on a quiet morning, um, I believe. She, I, I think many of us know that quote. It's, it's a profound quote of having this assurance that, that something that we already know within us is on its way into a, a deeply manifest form. And to stay true to, to that um, focus will bring it into our world. Perhaps not now, perhaps not in this lifetime, but maybe yet so. So I, I just so thank you, Kay, for being here tonight. I so honor your work and your deep and long-term commitment to this process and to bringing it into the world more, more fully. And it's been a great pleasure to host you tonight uh, with everyone in this circle. 
And um, I just want to remind people to please check out livingjusticepress.org and also to um, pick up a book called The Little Book of Circle Processes that Kay has written. She's also written numerous articles, and uh, including uh, an article on restorative justice. And um, it's called Peacemaking Circles from Crime to Community. And um, please check out uh, mollyrowanpresents.com for the archive of tonight's call, as well as for the upcoming schedule and archives from, from the history of this telecouncil series. Thank you again, Kay. With great honor and, and great respect for you and your work. Thank you, Molly, for for what you're doing in this this wonderful uh, contribution to, uh, through technology and and also for the the closing words that you had. I think that was very beautifully put. So I thank you mm. very much. And thank you, everyone. Uh, we're all a part of this together. Have a wonderful evening, and see you again soon. Good night. Good night.